Part Two of Acres of Diamonds by Russell Conwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The statistics of Massachusetts showed that not one rich man's son out of seventeen ever dies rich. I pity the rich man's sons unless they have the good sense of the elder Vanderbilt, which sometimes happens. He went to his father and said, Did you earn all your money? I did, my son. I began to work on a ferry boat for twenty-five cents a day. Then, said his son, I will have none of your money. And he, too, tried to get employment on a ferry boat that Saturday night. He could not get one there, but he did get a place for three dollars a week. Of course, if a rich man's son will do that, he will get the discipline of a poor boy that is worth more than a university education to any man. He would then be able to take care of the millions of his father. But as a rule, the rich men will not let their sons do the very thing that made them great. As a rule, the rich man will not allow his son to work. And his mother, why, she would think it was a social disgrace if her poor, weak, little, lily-fingered, sissy sort of a boy had to earn his living with honest toil. I have no pity for such rich men's sons. I remember one at Niagara Falls. I think I remember one a great deal nearer. I think there are gentlemen present who were at a great banquet, and I beg pardon of his friends. At a banquet here in Philadelphia there sat beside me a kind-hearted young man, and he said, Mr. Conwell, you have been sick for two or three years. When you go out, take my limousine, and it will take you up to your house on Broad Street. I thanked him very much, and perhaps I ought not to mention the incident in this way, but I follow the facts. I got on the seat with the driver of that limousine outside, and when we were going up, I asked the driver, How much did this limousine cost? Six thousand eight hundred, and he had to pay the duty on it. Well, I said, does the owner of this machine ever drive it himself? At that, the chauffeur laughed so heartily that he lost control of his machine. He was so surprised at the question that he ran up on the sidewalk and around a corner lamppost out into the street again. And when he got out into the street, he laughed till the whole machine trembled. He said, He drive this machine? Oh, he would be lucky if he knew enough to get out when we get there. I must tell you about a rich man's son at Niagara Falls. I came in from the lecture to the hotel, and as I approached the desk of the clerk, there stood a millionaire's son from New York. He was an indescribable specimen of anthropologic potency. He had a skull-cap on one side of his head, with a gold tassel in the top of it, and a gold-headed cane under his arm with more in it than in his head. It is a very difficult thing to describe that young man. He wore an eyeglass that he could not see through, patent leather boots that he could not walk in, and pants that he could not sit down in, dressed like a grasshopper. This human cricket came up to the clerk's desk just as I entered, adjusted his unseeing eyeglass, and spake in this wise to the clerk. 
You see, he thought it was English, you know. The lisp. Thur, will you have the kindness to supply me with thumb paper and envelopes? The hotel clerk measured that man quick, and he pulled the envelopes and paper out of a drawer and threw them across the counter toward the young man, and then turned away to his books. You should have seen that young man when those envelopes came across that counter. He swelled up like a gobbler turkey, adjusted his unseeing eyeglass, and yelled, Come right back here, now, sir. Will you order a servant to take that paper and envelopes to yonder desk? Oh, the poor, miserable, contemptible American monkey. He could not carry paper and envelopes twenty feet. I suppose he could not get his arms down to do it. I have no pity for such travesties upon human nature. If you have not capital, young man, I am glad of it. What you need is common sense, not copper sense. The best thing I can do is to illustrate by actual facts well known to you all. A.T. Stewart, a poor boy in New York, had $1.50 to begin life on. He lost eighty-seven and a half cents of that on the very first venture. How fortunate that young man who loses the first time he gambles. That boy said, I will never gamble again in business. And he never did. How did he come to lose eighty-seven and a half cents? You probably all know the story how he lost it because he bought some needles, threads, and buttons to sell which people did not want, and had them left on his hands a dead loss. Said the boy, I will not lose any more money in that way. Then he went around first to the doors, and asked the people what did they want. Then, when he had found out what they wanted, he invested his sixty-two and a half cents to supply a known demand. Study it wherever you choose, in business, in your profession, in your housekeeping. Whatever your life, that one thing is the secret of success. You must first know the demand. You must first know what people need, and then invest yourself where you are most needed. A.T. Stewart went on that principle until he was worth what amounted afterward to forty millions of dollars, owning the very store in which Mr. Wanamaker carries on his great work in New York. His fortune was made by losing something, which taught him the great lesson that he must only invest himself or his money in something that people need. When will you salesmen learn it? When will you manufacturers learn that you must know the changing needs of humanity if you would succeed in life. Apply yourselves, all you Christian people, as manufacturers or merchants or workmen, to supply that human need. It is a great principle as broad as humanity and as deep as the scripture itself. The best illustration I ever heard was of John Jacob Astor. You know that he made the money of the Astor family when he lived in New York. He came across the sea in debt for his fare. But that poor boy with nothing in his pocket made the fortune of the Astor family on one principle. 
some young man here tonight will say well they could make those fortunes over in new york but they could not do it in philadelphia my friends did you ever read that wonderful book of rius his memory is sweet to us because of his recent death wherein is given his statistical account of the records taken in eighteen eighty nine of one hundred and seven millionaires of new york if you read the account you will see that out of the one hundred and seven millionaires only seven made their money in new york out of the one hundred and seven millionaires worth ten million dollars in real estate then sixty-seven of them made their money in towns of less than thirty-five hundred inhabitants the richest man in this country today if you read the real estate values has never moved away from a town of thirty-five hundred inhabitants it makes not so much difference where you are as who you are if you cannot get rich in philadelphia you certainly cannot do it in new york now john jacob astor illustrated what can be done anywhere he had a mortgage once on a millinery shop and they could not sell bonnets enough to pay the interest on his money so he foreclosed that mortgage took possession of the store and went into partnership with the very same people in the same store with the same capital he did not give them a dollar of capital they had to sell goods to get any money then he left them alone in the store just as they had been before and he went out and sat down on a bench in the park in the shade what was john jacob astor doing out there and in partnership with people who had failed on his own hands he had the most important and to my mind the most pleasant part of that partnership on his hands for as john jacob astor sat on that bench he was watching the ladies as they went by and where is the man who would not get rich at that business as he sat on the bench if a lady passed him with her shoulders back and head up and looked straight to the front as if she did not care if all the world did gaze on her then he studied her bonnet and by the time it was out of sight he knew the shape of the frame the color of the trimmings and the crinklings in the feather i sometimes try to describe a bonnet but not always i would not try to describe a modern bonnet where is the man that could describe one this aggregation of all sorts of driftwood stuck on the back of the head or the side of the neck like a rooster with only one tail feather left but in john jacob astor's day there was some art about the millinery business and he went to the millinery store and said to them now put into the show window just such a bonnet as i described to you because i have already seen a lady who likes such a bonnet don't make up any more until i come back then he went out and sat down again and another lady passed him of a different form of different complexion with a different shape and color of bonnet now said he put such a bonnet as that in the show window he did not fill his show window uptown with lots of hats and bonnets to drive people away and then sit on the back stairs and bawl because people went to wanamakers to trade he did not have a hat or a bonnet in that show window 
but what some lady liked it before it was made up the tide of custom became immediately to turn in and that has been the foundation of the greatest store in new york in that line and still exists as one of three stores its fortune was made by john jacob astor after they had failed in business not by giving them any more money but by finding out what the ladies liked for bonnets before they wasted any material in making them up i tell you if a man could foresee the millinery business he could foresee anything under heaven suppose i were to go through the audience tonight and ask you in this great manufacturing city if there are not opportunities to get rich in manufacturing oh yes some young man says there are opportunities here still if you build with some trust and if you have two or three millions of dollars to begin with as capital young man the history of the breaking up of the trusts by that attack upon big business is only illustrating what is now the opportunity of the smaller man the time never came in the history of the world when you could get rich so quickly manufacturing without capital as you can now but you will say you cannot do anything of the kind you cannot start without capital young man let me illustrate for a moment i must do it it is my duty to every young man and woman because we are all going into business very soon on the same plan young man remember if you know what people need you have gotten more knowledge of a fortune than any amount of capital can give you there was a poor man out of work living in hingham massachusetts he lounged around the house until one day his wife told him to get out and work and as he lived in massachusetts he obeyed his wife he went out and sat down on the shore of the bay and whittled a soaked shingle into a wooden chain his children that evening quarreled over it and he whittled a second one to keep peace while he was whittling the second one a neighbor came in and said why don't you whittle toys and sell them you could make money at that oh he said i would not know what to make why don't you ask your own children right here in your own house what to make what is the use of trying that said the carpenter my children are different from other people's children i used to see people like that when i taught school but he acted upon the hint and the next morning when mary came down the stairway he asked what do you want for a toy she began to tell him she would like a doll's bed a doll's washstand a doll's carriage a little doll's umbrella and went on with a list of things that would take him a lifetime to supply so consulting his own children in his own house he took the firewood for he had no money to buy lumber and whittled those strong unpainted hingham toys that were for so many years known all over the world that man began to make those toys for his own children and then made copies and sold them through the boot and shoe store next door he began to make a little money and then a little more and mr lawson in his frenzied finance says that man is the richest man in old massachusetts and i think it is the truth and that man is worth a hundred millions of dollars today 
and has only been thirty-four years making it on that one principle, that one must judge that what his own children like at home, other people's children would like in their homes, too. To judge the human heart by oneself, by one's wife, by one's children. It is the royal road to success in manufacturing. Oh, but you say, didn't he have any capital? Yes, a penknife. But I don't know that he had paid for that. I spoke thus to an audience in New Britain, Connecticut, and a lady, four seats back, went home and tried to take off her collar, and the collar button stuck in the buttonhole. She threw it out and said, I am going to get up something better than that to put on collars. Her husband said, after what conwell said tonight you see there is a need for an improved collar fastener that is easier to handle there is a human need there is a great fortune now then get up a collar button and get rich he made fun of her and consequently made fun of me and that is one of the saddest things which comes over me like a deep cloud of midnight sometimes although i have worked so hard for more than half a century yet how little i have ever really done notwithstanding the greatness and the handsomeness of your compliment tonight i do not believe there is one in ten of you that is going to make a million dollars because you are here tonight but it is not my fault it is yours i say sincerely what is the use of my talking if people never do what i advise them to do when her husband ridiculed her she made up her mind she would make a better collar button and when a woman makes up her mind she will and does not say anything about it she does it it was that new england woman who invented the snap button which you can find anywhere now it was first a collar button with a spring cap attached to the outer side any of you who wear modern waterproofs know the button that simply pushes together and when you unbutton it you simply pull it apart that is the button to which i refer and which she invented she afterward invented several other buttons then invested in more and then was taken into partnership with great factories now that woman goes over the seas every summer in her private steamship yes and takes her husband with her if her husband were to die she would have money enough left now to buy a foreign duke or count or some such title as that at the latest quotations now what is my lesson in that incident it is this i told her then though i did not know her what i now say to you your wealth is near to you you are looking right over it and she had to look over it because it was right under her chin i have read in the newspaper that a woman never invented anything well that newspaper ought to begin again of course i do not refer to gossip i refer to machines and if i did i might better include the men that newspaper could never appear if women had not invented something friends think ye women think you say you cannot make a fortune because you are in some laundry or running a sewing machine it may be or walking before some loom and yet you can be a millionaire if you will but follow this infallible direction 
When you say a woman doesn't invent anything, I ask, who invented the Jacquard loom that wove every stitch you wear? Mrs. Jacquard. The printer's roller, the printing press, were invented by farmers' wives. Who invented the cotton gin of the South that enriched our country so amazingly? Mrs. General Green invented the cotton gin and showed the idea to Mr. Whitney, and he, like a man, seized it. Who was it that invented the sewing machine? If I would go to school tomorrow and ask your children, they would say, Elias Howe. He was in the Civil War with me, and often in my tent I often heard him say that he worked fourteen years to get up that sewing machine. But his wife made up her mind one day that they would starve to death if there wasn't something or other invented pretty soon, and so in two hours she invented the sewing machine. Of course, he took out the patent in his name. Men always do that. Who was it that invented the mower and the reaper? According to Mr. McCormick's confidential communication so recently published, it was a West Virginia woman who, after his father and he had failed altogether in making a reaper and gave it up, took a lot of shears and nailed them together on the edge of a board with one shaft of each pair loose, and then wired them so that when she pulled the wire one way it closed them, and when she pulled the wire the other way it opened them, and there she had the principle of the mowing machine. If you look at a mowing machine, you will see it is nothing but a lot of shears. If a woman can invent a mowing machine, if a woman can invent a jacquard loom, if a woman can invent a cotton gin, if a woman can invent a trolley switch, as she did and made the trolleys possible, if a woman can invent, as Mr. Carnegie said, the great iron squeezers that laid the foundation of all the steel millions of the United States, we men can invent anything under the stars. I say that for the encouragement of the men. Who are the great inventors of the world? Again, this lesson comes before us. The great inventor sits next to you, or you are the person yourself. Oh, but you say I have never invented anything in my life. Neither did the great inventors until they discovered one great secret. Do you think it is a man with a head like a bushel measure, or a man like a stroke of lightning? It is neither. The really great man is a plain, straightforward, everyday, common-sense man. You would not dream that he was a great inventor if you did not see something he had actually done. His neighbors do not regard him so great. You never see anything great over your back fence. You say there is no greatness among your neighbors. It is all a way off somewhere else. Their greatness is ever so simple, so plain, so earnest, so practical, that the neighbors and friends never recognize it. True greatness is often unrecognized. That is sure. You do not know anything about the greatest men and women. I went out to write the life of General Garfield, and a neighbor, knowing I was in a hurry, and as there was a great crowd around the front door, took me around to General Garfield's back door and shouted, Jim, Jim! And very soon, Jim came to the door and let me in and I wrote the biography of one of the grandest men of the nation, 
and yet he was just the same old Jim to his neighbor. If you know a great man in Philadelphia, and you should meet him tomorrow, you would say, How are you, Sam? Or, Good morning, Jim? Of course you would. That is just what you would do. One of my soldiers in the Civil War had been sentenced to death, and I went up to the White House in Washington, sent there for the first time in my life to see the President. I went into the waiting room and sat down with a lot of others on the benches, and the secretary asked one after another to tell him what they wanted. After the secretary had been through the line, he went in and then came back to the door and motioned to me. I went up to that ante-room, and the secretary said, That is the president's door right over there. Just rap on it and go right in. I never was so taken aback, friends, in all my life. Never. The secretary himself made it worse for me, because he had told me how to go in and then went out another door to the left and shut that. There I was, in the hallway, by myself, before the President of the United States of America's door. I had been on fields of battle, where the shells did sometimes shriek and the bullets did sometimes hit me, but I always wanted to run. I have no sympathy with the old man who says, I would just as soon march up to the cannon's mouth as eat my dinner. I have no faith in a man who doesn't know enough to be afraid when he is being shot at. I never was so afraid when the shells came around us at Antinum as I was when I went into that room that day. But I finally mustered the courage, I don't know how I ever did, and at arm's length tapped on the door. The man inside did not help me at all, but yelled out, Come in and sit down. Well, I went in and sat down on the edge of a chair, and wished I were in Europe, and the man at the table did not look up. He was one of the world's greatest men, and was made great by one single rule. Oh, that the young people of Philadelphia were before me now, and I could say just this one thing, and that they would remember it. I would give a lifetime for the effect it would have on our city and on civilization. Abraham Lincoln's principle for greatness can be adopted by nearly all. This was his rule. Whatsoever he had to do at all, he put his whole mind into it and held it all there until that was all done. That makes men great almost anywhere. He stuck to those papers at that table and did not look up at me, and I sat there trembling. Finally, when he had put the string around his papers, he pushed them over to one side and looked at me, and a smile came over his worn face. He said, I am a very busy man and have only a few minutes to spare. Now tell me in the fewest words what it is you want. I began to tell him and mention the case, and he said, I have heard all about it, and you do not need to say any more. Mr. Stanton was talking to me only a few days ago about that. You can go to the hotel and rest assured that the President never did sign an order to shoot a boy under twenty years of age, and never will. You can say that to his mother, anyhow. Then he said to me, How is it going in the field? I said, We sometimes get discouraged. And he said, It is all right. We are going to win out now. We are getting very near the light. 
no man ought to wish to be president of the united states and i will be glad when i get through then tad and i are going out to springfield illinois i have bought a farm out there and i don't care if i again earn only twenty-five cents a day tad has a mule team and we are going to plant onions then he asked me were you brought up on a farm i said yes in the berkshire hills of massachusetts he then threw his leg over the corner of the big chair and said i have heard many a time ever since i was young that up there in those hills you have to sharpen the noses of the sheep in order to get down to the grass between the rocks he was so familiar so every day so farmer-like that i felt right at home with him at once he then took hold of another roll of paper and looked up at me and said good morning i took the hint then and got up and went out after i had gotten out i could not realize i had seen the president of the united states at all but a few days later when still in the city i saw the crowd pass through the east room by the coffin of abraham lincoln and when i looked at the upturned face of the murdered president i felt then that the man i had seen such a short time before who so simple a man so plain a man was one of the greatest men that god ever raised up to lead a nation on to ultimate liberty yet he was only old abe to his neighbors when they had the second funeral i was invited among others and went out to see that same coffin put back in the tomb at springfield around the tomb stood lincoln's old neighbors to whom he was just old abe of course that is all they would say did you ever see a man who struts around altogether too large to notice an ordinary working mechanic do you think he is great he is nothing but a puffed-up balloon held down by his big feet there is no greatness there who are the great men and women my attention was called the other day to the history of a very little thing that made the fortune of a very poor man it was an awful thing and yet because of that experience he not the great inventor or a genius invented the pen that is now called the safety pen and out of that safety pen made the fortune of one of the great aristocratic families of this nation a poor man in massachusetts who had worked in the nail works was injured at thirty-eight and he could earn but little money he was employed in the office to rub out the marks on the bills made by pencil memorandums and he used a rubber until his hand grew tired he then tied a piece of rubber on the end of a stick and worked it like a plane his little girl came and said why you have a patent haven't you the father said afterward my daughter told me when i took that stick and put the rubber on the end that there was a patent and that was the first thought of that he went to boston and applied for his patent and every one of you that has a rubber tipped pencil in your pocket is now paying tribute to the millionaire no capital not a penny did he invest in it all was income all the way up into the millions but let me hasten to one other greater thought show me the great men and women who live in philadelphia a gentleman over there will get up and say we don't have any great men in philadelphia they don't live here 
they live away in rome or st petersburg or london or mayanook or anywhere else but here in our town i have come now to the apex of my thought i have come now to the heart of the whole matter and to the center of my struggle why isn't philadelphia a greater city in its greater wealth why does new york excel philadelphia people say because of her harbor why do so many other cities of the united states get ahead of philadelphia now there is only one answer and that is because our own people talk down their own city if there ever was a community on earth that has to be forced ahead it is the city of philadelphia if we are to have a boulevard talk it down if we are to have better schools talk them down if you wish to have wise legislation talk it down talk all the proposed improvements down that is the only great wrong that i can lay at the feet of the magnificent philadelphia that has been so universally kind to me i say it is time we turn around in our city and begin to talk up the things that are in our city and begin to set them before the world as the people of chicago new york st louis and san francisco do oh if we only could get that spirit out among our people that we can do things in philadelphia and do them well arise ye millions of philadelphians trust in god and man and believe in the great opportunities that are right here not over in new york or boston but here for business for everything that is worth living for on earth there was never an opportunity greater let us talk up our own city but there are two other young men here tonight and that is all i will venture to say because it is too late one over there gets up and says there is going to be a great man in philadelphia but never was one oh is that so when are you going to be great when i am elected to some political office young man won't you learn a lesson in the primer of politics that it is a prima facie evidence of littleness to hold office under our form of government great men get into office sometimes but what this country needs is men that will do what we tell them to do this nation where the people rule is governed by the people for the people and so long as it is then the office holder is but the servant of the people and the bible says the servant cannot be greater than the master the bible says he that is sent cannot be greater than him who sent him the people rule or should rule and if they do we do not need the greater men in office if the great men in america took our offices we would change to an empire in the next ten years i know of a great many young women now that woman's suffrage is coming who say i am going to be president of the united states some day i believe in woman's suffrage and there is no doubt but what it is coming and i am getting out of the way anyhow i may want an office by and by myself but if the ambition for an office influences the women in their desire to vote i want to say right here what i say to the young men that if you only get the privilege of casting one vote you don't get anything that is worth while 
unless you can control more than one vote you will be unknown and your influence so dissipated as practically not to be felt this country is not run by votes do you think it is it is governed by influence it is governed by the ambitions and the enterprises which control votes the young woman that thinks she is going to vote for the sake of holding an office is making an awful blunder that other young man gets up and says there are going to be great men in this country and in philadelphia is that so when when there comes a great war when we get into difficulty through watchful waiting in mexico when we get into war with england over some frivolous deed or with japan or china or new jersey or some distant country then i will march up to the cannon's mouth i will sweep up among the glistening bayonets i will leap into the arena and tear down the flag and bear it away in triumph i will come home with stars on my shoulder and hold every office in the gift of the nation and i will be great no you won't you think you are going to be made great by an office but remember that if you are not great before you get the office you won't be great when you secure it it will only be a burlesque in that shape we had a peace jubilee here after the spanish war out west they don't believe this because they said philadelphia would not have heard of any spanish war until fifty years hence some of you saw the procession go up broad street i was away but the family wrote to me that the tally-ho coach with lieutenant hobson upon it stopped right at the front door and the people shouted hurrah for hobson and if i had been there i would have yelled too because he deserves much more of his country than he has ever received but suppose i go into school and say who sunk the merrimac at santiago and if the boys answer me hobson they will tell me seven-eighths of a lie there were seven other heroes on that steamer and they by virtue of their position were continually exposed to the spanish fire while hobson as an officer might reasonably be behind the smokestack you have gathered in this house your most intelligent people and yet perhaps not one here can name the other seven men we ought not to so teach history we ought to teach that however humble a man's station may be if he does his full duty in that place he is just as much entitled to the american people's honor as is the king upon his throne but we do not so teach we are now teaching everywhere that the generals do all the fighting i remember that after the war i went down to see general robert e lee that magnificent christian gentleman of whom both north and south are now proud as one of our great americans the general told me about his servant rassus who was an enlisted colored soldier he called him in one day to make fun of him and said rassus i hear that all the rest of your company are killed and why are you not killed rassus winked at him and said cause when there is any fighting going on i stay back with the generals i remember another illustration i would leave it out but for the fact that when you go to the library to read this lecture you will find that this has been printed in it for twenty-five years 
I shut my eyes, shut them close, and lo, I see the faces of my youth. Yes, they sometimes say to me, Your hair is not white. You are working night and day without seeming ever to stop. You can't be old. But when I shut my eyes like any other man of my years, oh, then come trooping back the faces of the loved and lost of long ago. And I know, whatever men may say, it is evening time. I shut my eyes now and look back to my native town in Massachusetts, and I see the cattle show ground on the mountain top. I can see the horse sheds there. I can see the congregational church, see the town hall and mountaineers' colleges, see a great assembly of people turning out dressed resplendently, and I can see flags flying and handkerchiefs waving and hear bands playing. I can see that company of soldiers that had re-enlisted marching up on that cattle show ground. I was but a boy, but I was captain of that company, and puffed out with pride. A cambric needle would have burst me all to pieces. Then I thought it was the greatest event that ever came to man on earth. If you have ever thought you would like to be a king or queen, you go and be received by the mayor. The bands played, and all the people turned out to receive us. I marched up that common so proud at the head of my troops, and we turned down into the town hall. Then they seated my soldiers down the center aisle, and I sat down on the front seat. A great assembly of people, a hundred or two, came in to fill the town hall, so that they stood up all around. Then the town officers came in and formed a half-circle. The mayor of the town sat in the middle of the platform. He was a man who had never held office before, but he was a good man, and his friends have told me that I might use this without giving them offense. He was a good man, but he thought an office made a man great. He came up and took his seat, adjusted his powerful spectacles, looked around when he suddenly spied me sitting there on the front seat. He came right forward on the platform and invited me to sit with the town officers. No town officer ever took any notice of me before I went to war, except to advise the teacher to thrash me, and now I was invited up on the stand with the town officers. Oh, my! The town mayor was then the emperor, the king of our day and our time. As I came up on the platform, they gave me a chair about this far, I would say, from the front. When I had got seated, the chairman of the selectmen arose and came forward to the table, and we all supposed he would introduce the congregational minister who was the only orator in town, and that he would give the oration to the returning soldiers. But, friends, you should have seen the surprise which ran over the audience when they discovered that the old fellow was going to deliver that speech himself. He had never made a speech in his life. But he fell into the same error that hundreds of other men have fallen into. It seems so strange that a man won't learn he must speak his piece as a boy if he intends to be an orator when he is grown. But he seems to think all he has to do is hold an office to be a great orator. So he came up to the front and brought with him a speech, which he had learned by heart walking up and down the pasture where he had frightened the cattle. 
he brought the manuscript with him and spread it out on the table so as to be sure he might see it he adjusted his spectacles and leaned over it for a moment and marched back on that platform and then came forward like this tramp 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 he must have studied the subject a great deal when you come to think of it because he assumed an elocutionary attitude he rested heavily on his left heel threw back his shoulders slightly advanced the right foot opened the organs of speech and advanced his right foot at an angle of forty-five as he stood in that elocutionary attitude friends this is just the way that speech went some people say to me don't you exaggerate that would be impossible but i am here for the lesson and not for the story and this is the way it went fellow citizens as soon as he heard his voice his fingers began to go like that his knees began to shake and then he trembled all over he choked and swallowed and came around to the table to look at the manuscript then he gathered himself up with clenched fist and came back <clears throat> fellow citizens we are uh, fellow citizens we are we are we are we are we are we are very happy we are very happy we are very happy we are very happy to welcome back to their native town these soldiers who have fought and bled and come back again to their native town we are especially we are especially we are especially we are especially pleased to see with us today this young hero that meant me uh, this young hero who in imagination friends remember he said that if he had not said in imagination i would not be egotistic enough to refer to it at all this young hero who in imagination we have seen leading we have seen leading leading we have seen leading his troops on to the deadly breach we have seen his shining we have seen his shining his shining his uh shining sword flashing flashing in the sunlight as she shouted to his troops come on oh dear 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 how little that good man knew about war if he had known anything about war at all he ought to have known what any of my gar comrades here tonight will tell you is true that it is next to a crime for an officer of infantry ever in time of danger to go ahead of his men i with my shining sword flashing in the sunlight shouting to my troops come on i never did it do you suppose i would get up in front of my men to be shot in front by the enemy and in the back by my own men that is no place for an officer the place for an officer in actual battle is behind the line how often as a staff officer i rode down the line when our men were suddenly called to the line of battle and the rebel yells were coming out of the woods and shouted officers to the rear officers to the rear then every officer gets behind the line of private soldiers and the higher the officer's rank the farther behind he goes not because he is any less the brave but because the laws of war require that and yet he shouted i with my shining sword 
in that house there sat the company of my soldiers who had carried that boy across the carolina rivers that he might not wet his feet some of them had gone far out to get a pig or a chicken some of them had gone to death under the shell-swept pines in the mountains of tennessee yet in the good man's speech they were scarcely known he did refer to them but only incidentally the hero of the hour was this boy did the nation owe him anything no nothing then and nothing now why was he the hero simply because that man fell into the same human error that this boy was great because he was an officer and these were only private soldiers oh i learned the lesson then that i will never forget so long as the tongue of the bell of time continues to swing for me greatness consists not in the holding of some future office but really consists in doing great deeds with little means and the accomplishment of vast purposes from the private ranks of life to be great at all one must be great here now in philadelphia he who can give to this city better streets and better sidewalks better schools and more colleges more happiness and more civilization more of god he will be great anywhere let every man or woman here if you never hear me again remember this that if you wish to be great at all you must begin where you are and what you are in philadelphia now he that can give to this city any blessing he who can be a good citizen where he lives here he that can make better homes he that can be a blessing whether he works in the shop or sits behind the counter or keeps house whatever be his life he who would be great anywhere must first be great in his own philadelphia end of acres of diamonds by richard conwell this book recorded by phil chenevere